Man, what a great time of worship this morning. What a great focus upon the Lord. Trevor and our worship team has led us in, and man, to God be the glory um, for a time of worship. You know, this, this morning as we're gathered here, it is a special day for us. Uh, today is uh, the day that we as a church family are going to vote to affirm uh, Trevor Colazzo, our worship interim, to uh, whether or not he's going to be our worship pastor moving forward. He, so today, uh, following this service, we'll have a short members meeting. So if you're a member, we invite you to stay afterwards, and we will have a time of business to determine whether or not he will serve as our associate pastor of worship and ministration. He's done a great job over the last couple months. He and his wife and his boys, they have just fallen in love, and we've fallen in love with them. And so we're excited about the days ahead uh, for our church family. Take your Bible, if you will, and put one finger, <clears throat> excuse me, one finger, in uh, Genesis chapter 2 and put another finger in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin there as we begin a new series, a short series during this Christmas season. I heard about a Christmas get-together that Satan was throwing with his demons one day, and they were having this Christmas party, and as those demonic guests were leaving, one of them grinned and said to Satan, Merry Christmas, Your Majesty. At that, Satan kind of growled back, and he said, yes, keep it merry. If they ever get serious about it, we are all in trouble. Well, church, I want to just tell us this morning, inform us this morning, that we need to be serious about Christmas. Christmas is all about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about the birth of the Son of God. It marks the coming of God into humanity. It's the intervention of God's presence among humanities. And so this morning, let's look and see how Matthew records this great event. So let's look at verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. Matthew says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. These verses that we've read this morning, we encounter really the most extraordinary miracle that we find in the entire Bible. It's one of those remarkable mysteries, perhaps the most remarkable mystery in the entire universe. This miraculous mystery is described in just eight simple verses right here in Matthew's gospel. J.I. Packer, referring to this beautiful miracle, says this. He says, it is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the most profoundest and the most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. You see, our souls ought to be captivated by this fascinating glory in the midst of a very familiar story. 
In these verses, we learn two significant things about the advent or the coming of Christ. First, we learn how Jesus came. Matthew tells us that Joseph was betrothed to a young lady named Mary. They were engaged to be married. In the Jewish culture, this meant that they were legally engaged. They were married all the way up except for the ceremony and the consummation. So one day, Mary had to come to her fiancé at the time, this legal engagement arrangement they, they had, and she had to come and share some very difficult news with Joseph. She had to tell him that she was pregnant. She had to tell him that she was pregnant, and yet she had never known a man to actually become pregnant through. She had to tell him that the baby she carried was put in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so can you imagine being in Mary's shoes and in that situation and trying to share that story with Joseph? Can you imagine being on Joseph's side of that news and how troubling that would have been for him? All the questions that he had. Joseph, Matthew tells us, loved Mary. He cared for Mary. He didn't want to hurt Mary. And so he had decided to quietly give her some, some divorce papers and to nullify this marriage and nullify this relationship and to move on without causing any sort of pain on her life. Jewish law meant that he could have brought charges against her. But he chose not to do so. One night... Matthew tells us an angel came and visited Joseph in a dream, and this angel confirmed the very story that Mary had shared with him, that the baby she carried was not from another man, but it was from the Holy Spirit. He was to take Mary then as his wife, and he was to name this boy that she would bear Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. It's in this name to be given to the baby that we discover a second significant thing about the advent of Christ. We learn why Jesus came. We know how he came. Now we know why he came. Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua. It means the Lord is our salvation. It means the Lord saves. See, the angel declares here to Joseph the why of Advent, that Jesus would come for the salvation of humanity, that transcendent God would step out of heaven and into time and space tells us that Jesus came to mankind. It tells us that he came to be with us. And Matthew here even quotes the angel's statement that this was in fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14, that God would be with us for the purpose of saving humanity from their sins. Now, obviously, during Christmas, we celebrate as Christians the birth of Jesus Christ. We make much of God coming to dwell with mankind. We sing about it even this morning. And so over the next five Sundays, what I want to do is we're stepping out of the Gospel of Luke for this season. And I want us to look at Emmanuel. I want us to look at God with us. And so that's the title of this series. We're going to examine the theological concept of God dwelling with man. We're going to go all the way back to the very beginning of creation. That's where we're going to start this morning. And we're going to track this idea of God dwelling with man throughout salvation history. You see, God's desire and God's plan to dwell with man was not, and it is not, isolated to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In fact, it was God's very plan from the very beginning, and it will continue to be God's plan till the new heaven and the new earth. And so this morning, we begin it by looking at Emmanuel in Eden, Emmanuel in the garden. 
So take your place there in Genesis chapter 2, where I asked you to put your finger just a moment ago. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. For many of you, these are very familiar chapters. You understand what is laid out there before you, the creation aspect, the fall aspect. But what we find in Genesis chapter 1, as well as in Genesis chapter 2, is the story of creation. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, what you really see there is a 30,000-foot viewpoint of those seven days of creation. As you get into chapter 2, what you see is primarily a 30-foot view of the day 6 of creation, and especially the creation of mankind. There's a few other things that we see in that, in that, 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 that depiction of what took place on day, day uh, 6, but largely it's about the, the uh, creation of man... Adam and the creation of Eve and them coming together as the first family. And so we see here, we read here, that Adam was formed from the ground. And that God there in Genesis 2 breathed life to him. And so Adam, which is the Hebrew word for earth, was formed into Adam and God breathed life into his nostrils. He put him in the Garden of Eden, which seems to have been located perhaps somewhere in the, day of, or in the area of modern-day Turkey. The Bible tells us in Genesis 2 that one river flew, flowed out of Eden and became four rivers. You've got the, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Now, we don't know anything about the first two rivers, but we do know the Tigris and we know the Euphrates. And so, tracking those back to their origin, and it seems to be somewhere in that area of modern-day Turkey, in Eden. Adam was given the responsibility of working and keeping the garden. He was the steward of Eden. And it was a lush and beautiful place. In fact, the Lord gave him permission to enjoy and to eat from everything that was found in the garden. He was to break of everything to his own heart's content, which included even the tree of life itself. We read this, you see that it is a lavish and extravagant abundance. Adam could take from the tree of life as much as he wanted to. Everything was there for him. Everything was there for him to enjoy to the glory of God, except for one thing. And that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Bible tells us that that tree was off limits. And if he did eat from it, the result would be death. And so in this good and in this bountiful setting, something else was there. Something that was not good. Better yet, we could say it this way. Something was not there that made something not good about this good creation. We read that Adam was alone. He names these animals. and began to realize that the, 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 all these animals and all these insects and all these birds, they all have a mate, but there's no one suitable for me. And so God takes Adam, and from his rib, he fashions a woman. Ish becomes Isha in the Hebrew. Adam was overwhelmed by God's gracious gift to him. And so the first husband and the first wife become the first family. And chapter 2 closes with an incredible statement. The Bible tells us that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. That is, they enjoyed complete intimacy between one another without any hint of sin. They, however, were not alone together in this garden. We go to Genesis chapter 3 and we read that God came walking in the garden. 
In verse 8, we see that God comes walking. And in this context, what's happening here is Adam and Eve hear him walking. And rather than coming to him, they're hiding. And so we get the impression that this must have been the, the normal practice of Almighty God. That God would come and fellowship with his creation. That God would come and spend time with his people. And so on this occasion, though, they're hiding and they're, 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 they're hiding behind the bushes. They've covered themselves. Something is not right. And yet God is there in their midst. Well, we know what happened. We know that they had eaten from that forbidden tree. We know that because of that, everything that God said would happen did happen to them. And so as we think about it, as we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ this Christmas season, let's remember that dwelling with mankind has always been God's plan. It's always been God's desire. We see it on full display right here at the very beginning in Eden, there in the garden. There's three categories I want to speak of this morning, three categories I want to make note of. The first one is this. In the beginning, God established a relationship. As we think about God dwelling with man, in the beginning, we see that he initially, right off the bat, established a relationship. We see that God walked with man. Genesis 2.15. Look at that verse. I'm not going to read it. Many of you are familiar with it. Just look at what it says there. We see in this verse that the Lord placed Adam in the garden. Now, when I read that, I get the impression that Adam was not created in the garden, but God walked him to the garden. That God took some time to walk him not just to the garden, but around the garden to show him all the beauty, all of the luscious abundance that the garden had to offer. If you've ever taken a position at a new job or you've been promoted and were moved by your company to another location, you probably understand a little bit of this. You came into town. You talked with the, 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 the officials, the supervisors. They showed you around. Maybe they appointed somebody to take you around the city and to show you the highlights and everything that the neighborhood had to offer and the city had to offer and, and just try to paint this beautiful picture that, that would give you the reason to move to this place. I remember we came here in 2015, Kara and I, and we flew in. They set us up at Short Pump. I'm saying this because the chairman of the committee is no longer here. So I can kind of poke at this a little bit. They put us up in a hotel over at Short Pump because we don't have hotels in Powhatan. And they told us, it's a great place. Short Pump is new. It's awesome. It's wonderful. All these great businesses and restaurants. And, and it's just a short drive from Powhatan. I get in the rental car after we checked into the hotel. We're driving out here on that day to meet with people. I don't remember who or what. And we're driving out here. I'm thinking, where is this place? We're driving and driving and driving. I mean, you come down here, and I expect it because Virginia's so old, there'd be no trees that we'd all cut them down. We fly in, and I'm like, there's trees everywhere. We go to Palatine, there's trees everywhere. They never told us the truth in that whole ordeal. They made it seem so wonderful and so good, and it is, but there ain't no hotels, and there ain't no restaurants, and there ain't no shopping centers here. <laughs> That's not what God does in the Garden of Eden, though. He walks Adam around. And shows him everything that there is to offer. He says, all of this is for you. All of this is yours. This is good. You enjoy all that I've created. And it is all for you. But I want you to know something else about this. It wasn't just about showing him the goodness of the, uh, of the garden. God was walking with his friends. God was walking with his creation. God was walking and showing his divine desire to be with Adam and for Adam to be with God. In the beginning, God established a relationship. 
God walked with man. Secondly, God talked with man. We see in verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 2 uh, that God told Adam all that he needed to live and to experience the goodness of Eden. He says, here it's all for you, enjoy, but there's one tree, don't eat of it. And if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. So God here graciously did not give Adam, or did not leave Adam to figure it out all for himself. He took time to explain what it meant to live in Eden. But like the walk... There was more than just information. God was not talking to, to, to uh, Adam just to give him information, a manual of how to live there. God was talking with Adam because he was a friend. God was cr- talking with the creation because he wanted to be in relationship with his creation. Thirdly, God fellowship with man. The picture of God walking and talking with Adam sets this stage for this third aspect of God dwelling with man. I believe fellowship is on full display as it's featured in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. What does God do there? He's asking Adam and Eve, where are you? Where are you? They're hiding in the bushes. They've made coverings for themselves. They've obviously eaten from this forbidden tree, this forbidden fruit. And so God is asking, where are you? You see, God had walked and talked with the two Up until this point, not as a dispenser only, but also as a friend, enjoying their company. So God here, even though they've sinned, is pursuing a relationship. And on this day, the two did not run to meet the Lord as on all other days. I believe that there was a a, a desire in God's voice that they would come to him, that they would run to him. He wants to be with them, and he wants to be with them. And yet they're hiding. I hear God's concern in the voice that speaks. He wants to know about their welfare. God fellowship with man. This leads us to a second category that we need to take note of. You see, after sin, the relationship was broken. After sin, the relationship between God and man was broken. Rather than God walking with man and and man walking with God, now man no longer walked with God. We discover in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, that immediately upon eating from this forbidden tree, that the eyes of both of them were open and they, they knew they were naked. What does that mean? I think sometimes we get so caught up on the fact that they were not clothed and now they realize that they're clothed. It really has nothing to do with whether or not they wore clothes. It has everything to do with the shame that they felt. Now there's something that they need to hide from. They can be seen, and so they're trying to hold that up. They, they feel that they can be seen because there's sin there, there's rebellion there, and, and so they're trying to cover that. They sewed these fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. They, they hid among the trees when they heard God walking in Eden. See, the desire that they once had to walk with the Lord has now evaporated. Now they want nothing to do with that. They want nothing to do with the Lord. They had chosen to walk on their own. They had chosen moral autonomy separate from the Lord. Secondly, man no longer talked with God. Genesis 3, 9, we see this God called out to them asking their location. I seriously doubt that they answered the first time. I mean, how many times do we call out for our kids and they answer us the first time? I walk in the door these days, and I don't even get an acknowledgement most days, right? I, we've hit that stage in our kids' lives and, and growing up. They, they, just, they don't even know Dad came. In fact, there's been a few times in the last month or two, I'll come in, I'm doing different stuff. They're like, oh, I didn't know you were here. I've been here 20 minutes. Where have you been? Thank God for the dog. Amen? 
That little girl, she meets me at the door every time I come in, tails wagging, jumping up on me. She just wants to love dad. And I'm not even her dad. Man no longer talk with God. They're hesitant. God's calling out. If he called just once, I got to believe that there was hesitancy on their part to respond. You see, the temptation to eat from that forbidden tree was to seek wisdom. It was to seek wisdom without reference to the word of God. It was a decision on their part to determine what is right without any reference to God's revealed will. And therefore, now as a fallen creature, there was no desire in Adam or Eve to hear from or to converse with God. That's what's happening here. We should never think that Adam and Eve in the garden are, are, are kind of like, oh, Lord, I kind of messed up, and I really want to tell you about it. No, there's absolute abject rebellion against God in the garden. No longer walking, no longer talking. Which brings us to a third thing. No longer fellowshiped with God. Neither Adam nor Eve wanted to go on a walk or have a talk with God. There's no desire to think of God as their friend any longer. They had sought to be autonomous and on their own. And so the fellowship with God that they were created for, the fellowship that they had once enjoyed, now was broken. Broken. And they didn't want it pieced back together. You see, Adam and Eve were going to make their own way. Something's wrong with me. Shame has covered me. I'm a mess, but I'm not seeking the Lord. I'm going to fix myself. Let's sew some fig leaves together and cover our nakedness. When God comes into our, our presence, rather than run to him for redemption and forgiveness, let's hide from him. Fellowship is broken. Relationship is broken. And yet after the fall, what we see graciously is God's desire to dwell with man was not inhibited by man's sin. Or I should say it was inhibited by man's sin, but that's not the end of the story. That'd be a different gospel if it wasn't inhibited by sin. Number three, man's brokenness did not change God's affection and desire. God has always had, from the very beginning, this desire to be with his creation, and yet our sin has always gotten in the way. That's the picture of the garden. Our sin is in the way. Adam's sin is in the way. The relationship has been broken, and yet it never took God's desire away. It never took his affection away. God has always been pursuing humanity. He pursued humanity in the creation of humanity. He pursued humanity in the rebellion of humanity. And now, even post-rebellion, as we continue to walk in that nature, God has provided a way because he loves us and he wants us to be in relationship with him. So three things about this. We see God justly judged sin. I think many times we would love to just kind of look at God's grace and God's love and God's mercy and say, God's just going to kind of give a broad brush and say, it's no big deal. I know you didn't mean it. But that's not what he does in the garden here. God doesn't come to Adam and Eve and say, where are you? And they're like, well, I ate of that fruit that you told me not to do, but it wasn't my fault. It was the woman you gave me. It's really not that big of a deal. She's like, no, 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 it's the serpent. And God doesn't hear all of that and just say, I know, you misunderstood. I, I probably didn't give you the right instructions. No, he doesn't do any of those things. He judges their sin. You see, Adam was warned from the very beginning that if he ate from this forbidden tree, that he would surely die. Genesis 2.17. And when they ate from that tree, 
Who comes walking in the garden later that day? It's not Satan. God the Father comes walking. God the Father, the one who says, if you eat of that, you will die. And yet he comes. Does God know that they've eaten from this tree? Absolutely he knows. God's not surprised by that. He knows all things, the beginning, the middle, and the end. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're going to do long before we even get to thinking about what we're going to do. He knows all of those things. And so God is walking in the garden. Why? Because he has an affection for them. He has a desire to be in a relationship with them. And sin is broken, that the rebellion is broken, that, and yet he shows up in mercy and in grace. So in many ways, we see that the Lord is a gracious friend, but he's first a judge. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for your dust and to dust you shall return. God here first curse the serpent. He tells the serpent that he's going to crawl in his belly and he'd be cursed by all other or above all other creatures. Then he turned to the woman and he cursed her, he judged her. Now the woman is going to experience pain and childbearing. Now there's going to be contention in the marriage between her and Adam. And finally he cursed the man. It says that work that Adam was created to enjoy. Hey, Let's get something here. Work is something we were created for. Work is not a, a result of the fall. Work was a result of creation. But yet now because of sin and, and the judgment upon Adam, the very ground that Adam was created to tend to is now going to work against him. Creation itself was cursed as a part of this judgment upon Adam, thus judgment upon humanity. So this judgment is clearly seen in the death that took place. God had promised that if they ate from this tree, they would die. And Adam and Eve, immediately, when they ate of that fruit, began to die physically. Now, we read the story. We see in uh, the next couple chapters that Adam lived into his 900s. And you'd say, man, he lived a full life. He was never meant to die in the beginning. That's the judgment for sin. But they also died, more importantly, spiritually. And that happened instantaneously. It's evidence in their hiding. It's evidence in their blaming. Their quest for moral autonomy had brought their own deaths. And so God's justness and God's holiness demanded this. What we see here is, again, God is not glossing over their rebellion. God is not saying, I know you didn't mean it that way. No, he judges because he's holy and because he's just. But it's not the end of the story. Secondly, God graciously promised a Messiah. Genesis 3.15 is many times referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, uh, which is uh, Latin for simply the first gospel. This is the first reference to the gospel message in the entire Bible. 
Right here at the beginning, the outset of rebellion, as the first man and the first woman have rebelled against God, Jesus is preached. The gospel is shared. And so God here promises to crush the serpent's head through the offspring of the cursed woman. Uh, woman, you listen to the serpent. You, you, you listen to the temptation that you can have moral autonomy apart from the very one you were created by, the very one you were created for. You thought you could supersede that. And yet, even as I judge you, there's going to be one who comes from you that's going to crush the one that's tempted you to do this. We know that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus on the cross crushed the head of the serpent even as he bruised his heel. You see, when Jesus was crucified on the cross and he was buried in that grave, we celebrate on Easter Sunday and every Sunday of the year as Christians, we celebrate that Jesus got up from that grave and thus conquering death, hell, and the grave. All the consequences of sin are, are nullified in Jesus Christ because he is the one who has crushed the serpent. He's the one who's crushed sin's tyranny in our lives. God has promised a Messiah, and he's delivered it in Jesus Christ. And then just because God is gracious and good, in promising this Messiah to Adam and Eve, he gave them a foretaste of what was to come. We see in this third point that God redemptively provided a covering for sin. Look there, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What in the world does that mean? Did God take Adam and Eve down to the leather store? Be like, Adam, I want you to get some, um, why don't you get you some moccasins. I want you to get um, some chaps, leather chaps. I want you to get uh, Eve some sort of long dress made out of animal skins, and you guys just get it whatever you want. I, I got the bill, no, no problem. But as you leave Eden, I want to make sure you got good clothes. And is that, what, is that what the Lord did for Adam and Eve? Not entirely. There was no store. But what we see is God took an animal, I believe it was a lamb, and he sacrificed that animal, shedding blood, took the skins of that animal, and made a covering for their shame. Doesn't that look and sound like a, something else we see in the Bible? Someone else we see in the Bible? Doesn't that sound a whole, lot, a whole lot like what Jesus has done for us? That in Jesus Christ, God the Son who came to this earth, Emmanuel, God with us, didn't just come to be a good teacher, a good religious leader, didn't just come to be a miracle worker. Jesus, God the Son, came to give his life on the cross so that his blood that's shed could be for the remission of all sins. That his blood could cover all sins, make atonement for all sins. That God the Father, in his justness and in his holiness... And his wrath against sin could be satisfied because God the Son paid the price. Doesn't that sound what we're, like what we're seeing and reading in Genesis 3, 21? That an animal was sacrificed on behalf of another. That blood was shed so that sins could be forgiven. And a covering was made so that the guilt and the shame was no longer seen. That's what Jesus Christ does for us. And that was a simple, gracious, merciful foretaste of everything that would come in the one that was proclaimed in Genesis 3.15, that there's going to be one who comes to crush the head of the serpent, 
Adam and Eve, as you leave this garden, because I can't leave you here, because now there's the taint of sin in your flesh, and you can't eat of this tree of life. You will live forever. But if you'll look to the Messiah who's coming, there will be a day you'll eat of this tree again. Boy, we're going to get there in a few weeks. Genesis, not Genesis, January 1, we'll get there. That's what we see in the gospel. God is with us in the very beginning, even in the midst of sin, God comes to humanity. All of this foreshadows the beauty of the cross and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Earlier this morning, we sang in one of our songs these words, the Lord our God is ever faithful, never changing through the ages. And from this darkness, you will lead us and forever we will say, You're the Lord, our God. Church, do you see why we must be serious about Christmas? It's so much more than what we've made it out to be. It is all about the birth of the Son. It is all about marking the coming of God. It is the intervention of God's presence among humanity. It's the fulfillment of that first beautiful promise to send a deliverer who would crush the serpent. And yet the incarnation is not that first picture that we see in salvation history. We see the very first picture in creation itself as God creates humanity, not because he's bored and lonely. God experienced beautiful perfect, wonderful community between his triunion-ness as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But God in his glory, and because he is so glorious, he created so that we could enjoy him. God has always had a plan, always had a desire to be with humanity. And Jesus is a beautiful beautiful personification of that desire and that plan, even in the face of of sin. So this morning, as we celebrate the advent of Christ, let's not, let's not miss the point of all of it. Emmanuel, God with us. That's always been his goal. From Eden to today to the end of time, God's desire has and it always will be to dwell with us. You see, your sin today inhibits that. Your sin this morning inhibits that relationship that God designed you for, that relationship that God wants with you. Your sin, just like Adam and Eve, prevents that. It is a great chasm that you cannot cross. In fact, God the Father, because his wrath is poured out against your sin, cannot cross that chasm without paying the price for you. Thus enters God the Son. And so this morning, if you're sitting here, you've never been in relationship with Jesus Christ. We've got new faces this morning, quite a few. Some I know from the community, some you've been here before, and man, it's just great. If you're a guest this morning, you're a hometown folk, you're a member, a regular attender, whoever you may be this morning, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to know this morning, God loves you. He does. Man, this, is just, this passage just oozes with God's love and affection for you. And yet there's, a, there's something that inhibits his desire to move close to you. And that thing that inhibits is your own sin. And yet God has made a way. You see, I said there's a chasm. You can think of this as the Grand Canyon. I've been in the Grand Canyon. It's, a, it's one of the most glorious places you can imagine going in all of the world. You're standing there on one of the rims, south or north, it doesn't matter, and it's like 10 miles to the other side. I was a long jumper in high school, won the conference in my 
senior year of high school. You know how far I jumped? 20 feet, one half inch. I think that's what it was. As I get older, it probably gets longer. I'm not sure. 37 feet. No, I'm just kidding. 20 feet. That's like to the second row, maybe. Maybe third row. You think that's going to get me to the other side of the Grand Canyon? No, that's not even going to get me past the first rock that juts out from the, the cliff uh, below me. No, that, so there's no way we could ever get over the chasm. That's the gulf between the holiness of God and our own sin. And yet Jesus, God the Son, laid down so that we could cross over. This morning I would call you to hear the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and to see it in Jesus Christ and to be drawn to that like a gnat to light, understanding that God wants to be in a relationship with you. Man, if you're a Christian this morning and you just have lost the luster of all of that, I would call you to look into the face of Jesus again and see the beauty of the gospel. He loves you so much. He wants to know. He wants to fellowship with you. And yet we continue to walk away, walk away, walk away. Let's come back. Joe passed the church the other day. Saw a banner out front. It said, come home for Christmas. And I thought, man, that's so sad. That so many times as Christians, we have to be reminded to come home. But we always got to be reminded of that. Because we have a tendency to stray. So this morning, I don't know where you're at spiritually, but I would invite you. Let's look into the face of Jesus and see his love, his mercy, and his desire to know you and for you to know him. Let's stand to our feet this morning as we pray. Father... As we consider this incredibly glorious and yet challenging passage, we can't help but be overwhelmed by what we see and read. Overwhelmed by your mercy. Why would you ever pursue a, a people who have blatantly and intentionally walked away from you? There in the face of everything that was good, everything that was beautiful and wonderful, having no concept of anything else, and yet they still turn from that. Why would you ever pursue them? And yet, Lord, that is exactly what you did. You came walking in the garden. And Father, today all of us stand here in this room. Many of us are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Some are not. And Lord, we believe based on the authority of the word of God that you're walking in, in this garden today and you're pursuing us today. So Lord, I pray for that believer who just needs a fresh touch from you this morning, that you would encourage them. Lord, if there's a sin in their life that they're kind of dealing with and they're struggling with, they're not willing to give up, God, help them to understand that you love them enough and you want to work in that situation. May we loosen our grips from the things that entangles us so that we can reach up to our Abba Father. Father, I pray for those in this room, maybe watching this online even, who today are in the same boat Adam and Eve were in as God pursued and called and said, where are you? Where are you? God, they, the question you're asking them this morning is, where are you? And the truth is, Lord, they're walking into guilty distance. They're out of fellowship with the God who created them for, them for himself. 
They're not walking, they're not talking, they're not fellowshipping with the God who wants to do that. And they're not able to do what they're created to do. And so, Lord, help them to look with fresh eyes, new eyes, to see the grace and the mercy of Jesus and to say, I'm turning from sin and I'm turning to Jesus. He is the one my heart longs for. God, I pray today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, in this Christmas season, may it not just be a, a... a normal, routine, run-of-the-mill Christmas season. Nothing against the parties and the celebrations and the get-togethers and the kids' events and, and all of the things that we do as a part of the tradition of this holiday. But Lord, may we, in the midst of all of that, see more importantly the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it's all about. God with us. His plan, his desire from the very beginning, and it will last into eternity. God with us. We thank you for that. Holy Spirit, lead us as we respond now. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.